let's go ahead. You can open, if you have your Bible, open it to uh, Hebrews chapter 2. We started, we're three weeks in to our Hebrews series uh, that will take us uh, for quite a while. But we uh, finished chapter 1 last week. We're entering into chapter 2 in this series entitled, Jesus is Greater. Now, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry, the, the, the passage will be up on the screen. But since we are entering week number three, and to keep with kind of the flow or kind of the setup that we've done over the last two weeks, I want to make sure uh, for all of you uh, that uh, have been with us, uh, and for every follower, like every follower in the room, that, that we're on the same page. And maybe today, if you're visiting, I want you to get on the same page as us. And, and so, with that, I want to begin with a question that we asked last week. And the question is this: uh, What is the answer? Jesus. Hey, it should be second half. Like you should just, you know, what is the answer? Right? Jesus. Right? Like Jesus is the answer. A joke we make around here all the time is, uh, you know, we. Tell our kids, but don't tell our kids, like, Jesus is always the answer, right? Like, if there's a question, Jesus is the answer. Don't do that in school, but uh, you, you study hard, you work hard, but, uh, man, in, in the circumstances of life, what we know to be true is that Jesus is the answer. But today, as we hear that answer, as we answer that question, I want to take it a step further, because uh, I believe that since Jesus is the answer, I, I think one of the questions that comes with that is, uh, last week, like, why is he the answer? But this week, what do we do with that answer? I mean, do you just slap Jesus on any and every moment and situation you find yourself in? Yes and no. I say yes, because again, I've already said it. Jesus is our answer. He's the one we're looking to over and over again. All of Scripture is pointing to Jesus, right? And so we say yes, but by no, this is what I mean. It's not just the, the, the quick, yeah, Jesus. What I mean, and the reason I say no, is that there's more depth to the answer than a simple response of Jesus. He's far greater than that. Actually, from now until, for all of eternity, we will be learning of His greatness. Again, as I said last week, the writer of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is the answer by showing us that everything else is just a sign pointing to the substance. And so in the midst, uh, 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 in the face of everything that, that we uh, come into contact with, be it cultural uh, pressure, political persecution, or even immense suffering, we come with the view of the King that rules the kingdom. And His name is Jesus. He holds all authority. And so we can have confidence and security because He is greater. And again, my heart for working through this series is that our view of Jesus would grow. That each week as you leave this place, you would leave with a bigger view of who Christ is. That if you're a part of our Equip reading plan, if you're not, man, get a part of that, be a part of that. But every week what we're doing is, is we're reading things to give us a bigger and greater picture of how great Jesus is. You see, because as your, your, your view of Jesus grows larger, your worship and your obedience in following Him, the, the substance of all, it, it does the same. As Jesus becomes greater, you then follow Him in light of His greatness. 
And so while we can sit here and I can ask that really simple question and we can giggle the answer out, Jesus. You see, I think we can miss it if we simply just leave it at that. You see, the name of Jesus is not something we throw around as if the name holds magical powers that when spoken can conjure up whatever our hearts desire. We don't practice witchcraft and Jesus is not a genie. Jesus is also not some cultural label to be associated with or ascribed to simply because your parents labeled your family Christian as a child or because popular culture deems it to be so. Jesus is not a fad or an answer given as a way to gain power, authority, or health, wealth, and happiness for yourself. And guess what? When you seek to use Jesus in that way, things don't go well. I mean, if you don't believe me, like, go read Acts 19. I'm going to tell you the story, but just go read the story because it's, it's actually one of my favorite stories in the scriptures. Because it's just crazy what happens. So in Acts 19, Paul has been proclaiming the gospel and God has been using him by way of signs and, and miracles and wonders and these things are happening and people are coming to faith. You see, as he's doing this, that there's a group Listen to this. This is their job. They're traveling exorcists. So they just go from town to town casting demons and evil spirits out of people. And so these uh, brothers see this happening. Not only are they brothers that have this particular job, but they're actually the sons of a Jewish high priest. And what they decide to do, they say, hey, that's working for this guy, Paul. Let's try it. Because, hey, it seems to be working for him and maybe it'll work for us, too. And so they go into this house and they, they, they see this evil spirit, a person who says the evil spirit, and what they do is they say, look, you need to come out by the authority of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They, they tell this evil spirit, come out by the authority of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. You see what happens in the story and what I love, like the demon responds to him. In return, which shows, again, that the name of Jesus, void of faith and the life-giving and transformative power of Jesus, is not what we're after in life. Because these men try that. They say, hey, the answer must be Jesus. Let's just throw it out there. But what happens is the demon looks at him and he says, look, Jesus I know. Paul, I've heard of. But by what authority do you say these things? Who really he says, who are y'all? It gets crazier. Because what follows is the demon beats these seven men up so bad that they leave. This is in the Bible. They leave the house that they're in naked and wounded. He beats them up so bad they are naked. They just run out. They they they've lost everything, right? Pride, clothes, like anything they had. They've lost it. And in the words of Matt Chandler, I don't care how well you fight, if you go into a fight with clothes on and leave without them, you lose. Okay? Like you lose. There's no way around it. You lose. And so as we think about that, and we think about this answer and the depth that, that, that we really need, it's not something we just slap on, but there's much depth through the person and work of Christ. When we answer the questions of life with the answer Jesus as followers of Jesus, 
man, we better understand what the answer means and we better be ready to give an account of who He is and why He is greater than all seen and unseen. And so today, do you have an explanation as to why Jesus is the answer? Today, as you think about your life, is your answer in word and deed one of faith in the person and work of Christ or is it in something or someone else? Is it in the label that you put on yourself? Is it in the coffee cup that you carry around that has that one verse on it that's probably out of context? Is it in the signs that you hang up in your house, right? Those aren't bad things. But are they really answering the question? Are you ready to give an answer? Because guess what? People don't need another coffee cup. They don't need another. They need Jesus. Is He truly greater in your life? And if not, and where we're going to go today is, what has your attention? To take it a step further, in light of where we're heading in the text today, what has your worship and your obedience? What has your heart? Is it Jesus as an all-encompassing answer of faith and dependence as your risen Savior? Or have you drifted towards the ease and glamour of easy answers and other things that might proclaim to hold the name of Jesus, but understand nothing of the heart and substance of Jesus? For He is a person who is more than a person. He is the Son of of God, who as we saw in chapter 1, is greater than all. For He created and sustains all by the word of His power. He is our redemptive King who sits at the right hand of the Father for His work is finished. And He holds a name that according to Paul in Philippians 2 is above all names. A name that we see in Hebrews that places Him positionally and authoritatively higher than the angels. And so yes, the answer is Jesus, but it's not a label. It's the answer that transforms and brings about dependent faith in every season and circumstance of our lives. And my hope is that as a church, we would be a people who have and are ready to give response to why Jesus is the answer. That it would flow from what the gospel has done and is doing. Today, what has your attention? Today, are you ready to give an account of what Jesus has done for you? It's what the world around us needs. They're looking and searching and diving in and going this way and to that experience, to that experience, to that experience. And guess what? We hold the answer. But are we just casting out as a label and just saying, yeah, Jesus is it? Or are we getting in and down in the thick of it and saying, this is why? And so in light of this reality and on the heels of what we've already seen regarding the supremacy of Christ in chapter 1, Let's look at the writer's attentive call in Hebrews 2, verse 1. We're only going through four verses today. And I know you're like, that was a long introduction to get where we are. It's okay. But we are going to spend most of our time in verse 1. Hebrews 2, verse 1 says this, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So this chapter begins with therefore. And when we see therefore, what do we do? We go back and see what it's there for, right? 
So we go and you look up. So the, the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, based on what I've written already, if you don't remember, go look at it again. Therefore, what we know from what we've covered is that Jesus is above all in authority and name, superseding even the angels whom God used in the Old Testament to deliver the words of the law. But what we also gain from the beginning of this letter is that those to whom the author is writing are being threatened to turn to things other than Christ in the face of pressures and persecution. They're being threatened with this picture. Hey, just follow the crowd. Just turn back to what you once knew. Just submit to the culture. It'll be way easier if you do. Now what I love about God's Word is, uh, I believe it's always timely. And it's good, but man, it, 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 like, do we not feel that today? Maybe not on this level, maybe in some ways. But the pressure to say, hey, just follow the crowd. Just submit to the culture. It'll be easier if you do. And so following what was a definitive argument of a supremacy as the foundation for Jesus, Jesus, and only Jesus being our answer to every question, the writer now presses us and those to whom this is written to not simply cling to that as the answer, but in light of the threat to look elsewhere for hope and security and rest, they and we are to set our gaze and put our faith all the more in Jesus, Jesus, and only Jesus. Today and every day, you are to set your eyes upon Christ and nothing else. In life, do you ever have you ever like taken your eye off of something and things get sideways real quick? Like you ever text and drive and like you look down and you get a little sideways and you're like, "Whoop! Nope, never doing that again." In the next day, right? Like you're on it again. You're like, "Why?" Uh, or maybe you know if you play sports, like you took your eye off the ball. What what happens? Like somebody throws a baseball at you and you're not looking, guess what? You're going to get sideways pretty quick, either by leaning or by getting knocked down uh, by said ball. Like if you take your eye off of something, and in life, like you can get sideways really quickly. Things happen, things go poorly. So when I was going into the, when I was in the second grade, I was an only child and so I had a lot of time on my hands and uh, so I learned how to ride a bike, but I taught myself how to ride a bike with no hands. And I remember the day, like vividly I remember this day, and I was so proud of myself. Because I had done it. I had accomplished, like for a second grader, that was an accomplishment. And so I'm just circling the block, no hands. I could turn, I could go, and I'm going, and man, there's a moment I'm like, I got so, so much more time for activities, for thinking, because I don't have to hold the handlebars. And so I'm just going along. And so what do I do? I start looking at the beauty of God's creation. And, and I remember I look up and I'm like, man, the clouds are beautiful today. And I'm looking and staring at the clouds in the blue sky. And then, bam, I hit a truck. Not a moving truck. A vehicle parked on the side of the road. I went sideways and boom, horrible pain. Horrible pain. Because I took my eyes off of what I should have been having my eyes on, right? Parents in the room. You ever take your eye off your kid for one second? Like one second. And they're gone. 
And you're like, I have no idea. You didn't hear them. You don't see them. They're probably doing bad things. And you're just like, what is going on? But one second. Like I'm convinced as a father of three, almost four, that kids are sloth-like in every other movement of instruction and childhood except when you take your eye off of them. Then they become the Usain Bolt of getting away and digging in the trash, the toilet, and whatever is the bad thing around them. Like y'all get this, right? Like we see it. We get our eyes off, like we get sideways really quickly. And I believe that the writer of Hebrews understands this not only generally in life, but specifically in the face of life. And he says in verse 1 that we must. Don't overlook that word. Like stop right there. The the writer is not saying you should or if you would like to as long as nothing else comes along. No, the text begins with, in light of who Christ is as supreme, you and I must. The must there is that there's no better thing to look to. There's nothing else that's life-giving. Nothing else that is blessed. Or there's no other flourishing option. And so we must, but what must we? He then says, pay much. So he gives this directive, hey, you need to be serious about this. And then he says, pay much, which is that that much is, man, you give it more attention than you often give it. You're paying closer attention to what? He says, pay much closer attention to what you have heard. The, The writer doesn't say pay much closer attention to what you still need to do to please the Lord, to to pay much closer attention to a set of best practices. No, he says pay, or she, or whatever the writer was, says pay closer attention to what you have heard. Now this is so good. And should cause us, especially in the fast-paced, tech-savvy, quick, and constantly changing, media-centric culture that we live in, to stop and just reflect for a second. Because what the writer is saying is that in the midst of everything coming at you, you have to focus and deliberately not just pay attention, but to pay much closer attention, focused attention, To what you've heard. See the writer of Hebrews is presenting a charge. That leads to a warning at the end of the verse. Because he wants us to realize. That to live our lives as disciples. We must be people that learn to pay attention. To what we need to pay attention to. You need to learn. I need to learn to pay attention to what what I need to pay attention to. You have to be aware and even hold concern about what holds your attention. Because what holds your attention holds your worship, your obedience, and your trust. And so today in your life, what holds your attention? Is it Jesus or something else? You see, we live in a culture that now more than ever, it is easier to numb out to disconnect and to revert our attention to whatever makes us feel good, to whatever gives us pleasure or allows us to escape. And yet in doing so, we have no mental fortitude or spiritual stamina to remain attentive to the only one worthy of our gaze. 
I believe that's one of the problems of the Gospel today. You see, we have a power problem that is rooted in an outgrowth and outsourcing mentality. Now, what I mean by that is this. Uh, for some, the Gospel is nothing but a ticket in. It, protects, it saves me from my past and, and protects me from one day in the future, but it means nothing for today. For some, this power problem that is an outgrowth or outsourcing mentality is this idea that the Gospel gets me started and either I do the rest, which again is a false Gospel, or let me just kick back and do nothing. Now, I've heard this phrase or some form of this phrase so many times as a disciple, but specifically as a pastor. A, a phrase that sounds like this from people. Yeah, I used to do that stuff as a Christian, but I don't need to do that anymore. I used to. But I don't need to do that anymore. I don't need to do that stuff. That stuff being reading your Bible and praying, being a part of community, uh, worshiping uh, together, sharing your faith, uh, uh, doing things that keep your attention upon Christ. So you have that side, but also uh, the, the phrase can even morph into, I don't have to do that anymore because the pastor, it's been outsourced to the professionals. Wrong. If you're around me very long, I'm not a... Like, details are not my thing, okay? I love to sit down and talk, and but man, by no means am I a professional. I'm a disciple of Jesus. A servant of Christ that's been gifted in different areas. But guess what? You've been gifted in different areas. And God has called you to the same work of proclaiming the good news. Quit outsourcing it. Stop outsourcing it. I mean, just think about that again. Like, do you do those same things in other relationships? And if so, because I believe it does happen, how has that worked out? I would probably argue poorly. Like when you got married and said, I do, did you quit? Like, I don't have to care for my spouse anymore. I said, I do. Just got to hold on till death does us part. They serve me. No. Doesn't work out well. Also what the Word doesn't call us to. In parenting, do you see your one-year-old and say, hey, you have your first birthday, get a job. I do at times, but I'm just joking with them. Mostly. You say, ah, I'm, done. I'm done parenting you. No, like even when they leave the house, I, mean, I haven't had one leave the house yet, but you're still parenting them. It looks different. You do it in friendship? Do you, do you is a healthy friendship one where you say, I got what I need, be gone? Man, all those things are lifeless, unhealthy, and lonely. Guess what? You will never outgrow the gospel. You need it as much today, and I've said this a hundred times, as you will tomorrow and just as much yesterday as you do today. You'll never outgrow it. And if you feel you've outgrown your need for the good news of Jesus, one of two things has happened. Either the good news you thought you believed was not good news, but a false gospel. Or, you're drifting. 
And then I implore you today to turn to Jesus, who is the only one who can give life and change hearts. Like preach the gospel to yourself and to others daily. We get the reason why with the warning at the end of verse 1 that says, so you don't drift away from it. You must pay much closer attention to what you have heard, the good news of Jesus, so that you don't drift away. The descriptor here is kind of a nautical descriptor, a descriptor of a boat that is not anchored. A boat that is not anchored is easily made to drift away from safety and the security of shore. You see, in the face of uncertainty, persecution, doubt, hardship, one must pay close attention to where they are putting their faith and hope for anything other than Christ will not produce the security it promises. He is the only sure foundation. He is the hope and anchor of our souls. Nothing else can deliver on that promise. You see, the culture around you wants to do everything it can to get you to believe that you can just drift, that you can just float along through life. But guess what? It will carry you to waters you don't want to be in. Waters that will overtake and pull you under. And so let us wake up, church, from our slumber and laziness and get serious about paying much closer attention to the good news that not only brings us life, but sustains us and transforms us along the way. Look to Jesus. But not just simply as a label. As the King above all kings. The one who when He said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. That you follow that King and no other thing. Grow in the disciplines of reading your word. There's always more to learn. Grow in prayer. Grow in being more emotionally healthy and pressing into community and learning to share your needs. Grow in service and serving and being served, worshiping, proclaiming the gospel to yourself and others, pursuing your spouse in light of how Christ pursued you, pursuing other people if you're single in the midst of it, so you might proclaim the gospel to those around you in your parenting. In your grandparenting, in your empty nesting, in being a coworker and a boss, in being a neighbor, I could go on and on and on. Do you see how transformative and great the good news is? And so, what holds your attention? And in life, are there drift areas? encourage you to allow the Spirit to, to just man, draw, like, draw near today and say, Holy Spirit, are there drift areas in my life where I've become calloused? Where I've begun to set my attention on other things other than You? And so let's continue and close out with this call in verses 2-4 through four, where the writer continues his argument. Beginning in verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Okay. So the writer in seeking to really drive the argument 
home turns in verses 2-4 through to this Hebrew debate style that literally means light and heavy. Which reasons that if the lesser, 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 lesser thing described is true, and it holds truth, then the greater thing described is true as well. Look at what the writer does in verse 2. It says that since the message of the law, which is the lesser argument being made, was given by God and shared by the angels, since that proved reliable or true, And with its truth, it brought about retribution or it brought about consequences for the breaking of it. For we know that the breaking of the law brought about consequences, right? Both eternal and immediate at times. But also it required sacrifice to make amends for it. How then, verse 3 says, Shall we escape if we neglect the greater thing that comes by way of salvation in Christ who perfectly fulfilled what the law commanded and yet stood in our place as the the perfect sacrifice for sin once for all? The answer to this rhetorical question is that no escape is possible. What the writer means is that the consequences of neglecting the fruit of one's salvation, which likely does not mean a full abandonment of the gospel, for again, Christ saves and sustains. We do not save and sustain ourselves. Rather, the wrestling here is that we would neglect the gospel in the face of suffering or circumstance in favor of some form of quick band-aid feel-good faith message that does nothing to sustain or give us hope. You see, only the good news of Jesus can bring us out of that. A good news, the writer says, that was not declared simply by prophets or presented by angels, although they all, all that they spoke of pointed to Him. The writer says that this was first declared, that it was declared by Christ Himself. The Word that put on flesh and dwelt among us. It was this message that was then declared by the disciples who had been with Him, seen Him, heard Him, and experienced His resurrection. And they were given power when the Spirit came upon them to be His witnesses, first in Jerusalem, then to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It came about by way of proclamation and by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts as the Spirit distributed according to His will. And it was this message of salvation, hear this, and hope that was at work that in spreading to the ends of the earth made its way to America and then to Texas and to Brenham, Texas and continued on. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it met you right where you were. Maybe today, if you don't know Jesus, it meets you here today. It meets us in our death and it gives us life. And we must pay more attention. We must pay closer attention to it so that we too do not drift in the face of cultural pressures, be it by way of legislation or cultural Christianity. For our hope is found in nothing less than Jesus and Jesus alone.
He is greater. So why do we look elsewhere? The message hasn't changed. It's still needed. And guess what? The answer is still that Jesus is greater. So as the team comes back up, this is what I want you to do today. Today, I want you to ask yourself, where's your attention? Well, what are you focused on? And if it's not Christ, I, I implore you, repent and turn to Him in faith. Today, where are you drifting? And if you're drifting in an area, again, turn to Jesus. Today, are there things that you've turned to for hope, security, and rest that have caused you to neglect the salvation that you have in Christ? And if so, no matter what it is, turn to Him. He's the only one who can change your life and transform your heart. But I'd also say this, as you turn to Him, God calls us into His family, which then is to draw us into His community. You can't do it on your own. You need a community around you to walk with you. Because guess what? And if I'm drifting, a lot of times I can't see myself drifting. I'm just drifting along. But other people can that's my, why my wife Haley is such a great grace to my life. It's because she can see when I'm drifting and she says, hey. But do you have people in your life? Are you connected to a, a, a community? Not, not just a community of Brenham. Are you connected to a church in such a way that people know where you're at and they can tell, man, you're kind of drifting right now. And they don't come to you and just throw down the judgment gauntlet. They come to you and they present to you the grace and mercy of Jesus. So as you think on these things, I invite you to um, to pray and respond. But also, once you invite you into, uh, if you don't have a community, to be a part of what God's doing here at Center Church. We don't do it perfectly, but He's doing something. And it's not just because I'm up here saying that. Like you could ask people in here, He's doing something. It's a good work. We could share story after story of that. And then I want to invite you, if you're a follower of Christ, not only if you're a follower of Christ, that you can come and share in communion with us. But, but what Jesus says, He says, when you do this, do it what? Do it in remembrance of Me, that our attention would be upon Christ and what He did in giving His life for us. And so we don't do this. this is, again, this is not just an act that we do. This proclaims, Jesus, You are greater than I. And so as you take today, whether it's in a cup or dipping in the glass, that you would do so in response to the greatness of who Christ is. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we'd ask that you abstain, not because we want to single you out, but because we believe that, man, because Jesus is so great and the price that He paid, that this was costly. And so we don't want to take it in vain. We don't want to just take it because we feel pressured to. 
but because of what Jesus has done for us. If you find yourself in that position today, you can come talk to me. Say, hey, what does it look like to follow Jesus? I would love to talk to you about that. So we're going to give you a few moments to reflect and pray. And then you can come and share in communion when you're ready. And then the team will lead us in one last song. But let me pray for us. Father, we thank You that You sent Your Son. That He is the Word that put on flesh. We thank You that, 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 uh, that He is the only one worthy of, of worship and our attention. So God, I pray for each of us in the room today. Lord, where there are areas that our attention is off, where there are areas where our eyes are not on You and we are drifting and being tossed to and fro, that we would look to You today, the author and perfecter of our faith, as it says in Hebrew. God, we know that You are near. God, I thank You that You've given us the church, the body of Christ, as an encouragement and accountability to our lives. Lord, I pray as we uh, hear these words from Hebrews 2 today, that, that this Word was shared and attested to, that we would also know that in our lives we are called to attest to the same. And so may we be a people that do that. That we would be a people that proclaim because our attention is set on You and we will call others to set their gaze on the only One that can change their hearts and bring transformation to their lives. So we ask that You move during this time. In Jesus' name, Amen.